Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hi, I'm Mina Kim. And I'm Alexis Madrigal. And this is Forum in Focus, a show where we bring you some of our favorite conversations recorded live on our radio show Forum on KQED in San Francisco. Yeah, and on this Forum in Focus, we both got into some cool, like, music subcultures. Right, Alexis? We did. We did. You know, we had on uh, Penn Harshaw, who hosts a KQED podcast called Right Nowish. And, you know, he grew up in Oakland right at the height of what was called hyphy this like high energy musical subculture, dance, hip hop. But you know, there's some contradictions and some tensions that most people probably, even if they know what hyphy is and listen to the music, haven't thought all the way through. So his series is called Hyphy Kids Got Trauma. And it's really about, you know, murders peaked in, in Oakland in the same year that the music peaked. And Penn is really the only person who really could tell the story in the way that he did. And he, it's just such a beautiful series, and, and it's a beautiful conversation. I remember having Penn on when he was literally riding his bike and trying to distribute books that he'd written out of his backpack. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember those. I have a copy, like, in the room next door. Yeah, yeah so, so good. So uh, really Mina, you went goth this week, yeah? I did. Oh, my gosh. So I am a Cure fan. And so we got to have the former drummer and keyboardist, co-founder, actually, of The Cure with Robert Smith, Lowell Tolhurst. And we got to talk about his new book all about goth. And, mm. you know, The Cure is credited with being sort of one of the origins of the goth sound. But interestingly, he also talks about how goth is a culture, a culture of inclusivity, of acceptance. It's a place for sort of a place to go where you can express your frustration with life or limited opportunities, but you can also express your really emotional side mm. and your moody side. <laughs> and he was actually saying that one of the original goths or the band that uh, did one of his favorite songs that has been called uh, Where Goth Began is By the Doors. Uh, he describes it as a tale of alienation and being an outsider, which are central tenets for the punk and goth movements and also about how goth has united so many people who feel like outsiders people who feel strange mm. so let's hear a little bit of people are strange by the doors when you're strange faces come out of the rain when you're strange that's people are strange by the doors Walt Holhurst says the doors influenced him and influenced goth Paul Hurst is co-founder of The Cure and was the band's drummer and keyboard player. And he's written a new book called Goth a History. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions or comments for Lol. Were you or are you goth? Were you a goth kid? Are you a goth elder now? What has the goth community or subculture meant to you? How do you define it? What has the cure in their music meant to you? What do you want to ask or tell Lal Tolhurst? This listener on Discord writes, is my chemical romance goth? 
emo, pop punk. I'm realizing that I'm not sure. And I'm actually really excited to hear Lal's definition of the genre. <laughs> so you've established a little bit the, the freedom part of it, the you know, nonconformity, the yeah. sort of resistance to convention part of yeah. it, and also the way that it sort of encapsulated the darkness, pain, a sense of a dismal future. Why were the doors, in your view, mm. sort of a, a goth influence then? Um, you know, a lot, a lot of doors stuff is very, uh, you know, poetic and dark. And and so it's really that much, and and also you know without being too facetious, it's leather pants. Um, you know, there's there's all kinds of things about it. I mean, it's interesting to me because I I have lived in in California for the longest period I've lived anywhere in my whole life. I've lived here for thirty years, and probably a couple of miles from where I live, um, there's a wall with poetry on, and it's uh, Jim Morrison's poetry, and, and and it's kind of ironic that it surrounds you know the the most establishment type of place. It surrounds the police station on Venice Beach. Um, you know, and, and there's there's a place, there, there's a, a pub just a little way along the way, uh, the King's Head English pub, and that's where the Doors first played. And so to me, it it's very much, uh, it, you know, it's imbued in the places that I, I live and where I've lived, and it's very close to me. I can see the connections because... People always like to think that that stuff like you know, for instance, a lot of a lot of people would say, well, I don't know really if I think the Cure are goth or whatever, and I I think well, you know, the, the misses the point. The point is that that we were like the fertile ground where a lot of that stuff came from, and we had been seeded by things that came before. You know, one of the things I like to point out to people is 1977, which was like a pivotal year for music in the UK and and here in the States, um, two records came out that for me and The Cure changed everything. I know. Uh, the, the Clash's first album. Mm. And also, David Bowie's Low. That came out in 1977. So they're, they're two different tones of, of nonconformity. And, you know, at the time we were listening to a lot of uh, different kinds of music like Can and, and Cluster, and like the German bands. And then punk came and showed us that we could do something because, you know, up until that point, uh, 70s, it was like prog rock and disco, you know, which are fine, but, you know, we were never going to do either of those. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, that's that was the, the, the catalyst. Yeah. There. Well, I'll really quick talk about how... Um goth or your music is is influenced by punk but also how it's not punk right yeah well you know here's the thing back in the, the, the 70s a lot of rock music you know the lyrics were very sort of misogynistic and and uh very, very on the outside they were about externalizing things everything was on the outside uh, and punk came along and was just sort of like you know a bit more nihilistic and a bit more angry but there were also people in there like uh, polystyrene, uh, you know, with X-ray specs, who who were you know bringing in different different moods. You know, it wasn't really she wasn't really like a, a typical uh, woman musician of the time. You know, so she brought things in that were different, uh, as long with you know people like Susie. And uh, so I think also what happened that that we were allowed to write about things that were internal like our, our, our feelings and our emotions and express those. And that was really a big leap for, for especially for male singers, you know, because it wasn't, it wasn't viewed in that way. So we, we were able to do things that were more uh, 
akin yeah. to to that, you know, and that was yeah. that was that was what we wanted to do. I loved your description. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but that <laughs> you know, you goth music inherited sort of the anarchy and nihilism of punk, but substituted the nihilism somewhat with a desire to fully talk about and confess your emotions. Um, which I I can really hear. Well, Rebecca writes, related to The Doors, the band The Doors does not typically conjure up images of gothic rock, but after learning that the term was coined in 1967 by a music critic who had met with Jim Morrison in a dimly lit wine cellar, to me, The Doors song, The Crystal Ship Nails the Goth Ambiance. Here's a verse sample. The days are bright and filled with pain. Enclose me in your gentle rain. The time you ran was too insane. We'll meet again. We'll meet again. And Tristat on Discord writes, there are plenty of us old goths who started as teens in the 80s when The Cure first became well-known and we're still around, listening to goth music, wearing black, reading gothic literature, perhaps working in tech and going out to local clubs like SF's Death Guild, the oldest continuously running goth and industrial club night in the U.S. and newer wow. events like the pop-up art sale called Menagerie Oddities Market. <laughs> You know, wow. you you wrote about um, how in 1981 you came to play in California and what that experience was like. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that was so notable about it was that, you know, people have this idea of California as this sort of happy golden state. But you mm. said that it was in California, that California got goth. Why yeah. did California get goth to you? Uh, you know, it, it, it's the thing about. I think it's always on on the, the cutting edge of of uh, contemporary thought. You know, in lots of ways, uh, California is. That's that's why I live here. That's why I came here to live because I appreciated that. I mean, we arrived in in California, and, and admittedly, you know, Lydia Lunch was not from here, but she was there in California when we got there, when most everybody else that was walking around were wearing pastels and had, you know, very blonde and tanned. Um, it, there was this person we met the first time we got here who was looked pretty goth, you know, as you would know it. And uh, so there was this whole underground thing going on, you know, and, and it was, it was, you know, very, very interesting to us. So, you know, we, we felt at home. Yeah. Well, Rick writes, so glad that you're meeting with the drummer from the band The Cure this morning. Even though they are not part of my generation, Gen X, my favorite song of theirs is called Love Song. Oh, really? Not part of Gen X? Years later, in the early 2000s, Marcus Moon did a reggae version of Love Song, but nothing is ever as good as the original. You Goth has influences from reggae, right? It was influenced yeah. by reggae and dub, too? Yeah, um, mostly that for me. I mean, I, I look to like you know, I have a friend in the, in the Bauhaus, uh, Kevin Haskins, you know, and I asked him about that. And you know, most of it is the fact that like when when punk was starting, there was a great alliance between the punks and reggae. I mean, you know, you have to remember there was uh, I think there was. I think it was Bob Marley made a song called Punk A Reggae Party, you know, which was so, so it aligned the two things because we felt, you know, especially in London, uh, there, there was a great connection there. And so, you know, and you have to remember, like I write in the, the book, the, the first time I realized that things were changing was I went to the uh, Notting Hill Carnival, which was like, you know, a big celebration of reggae and all kinds of things, you know, uh, along that style. Uh, but, you know, the punks felt a great allegiance together. And so that's that's where the, the you know, that yeah. kind of music in, influence comes. You know? Well, I want to play a little bit of Bauhaus. I want to play Bella Lugosi's Dead. So let's hear a little oh. bit now and then I want to talk with you about it. 
Listening to Bella Lugosi's Dead by Bauhaus. And we'll talk about the importance of that song to you and to goth. It's been considered by many to be the first sort of quote unquote goth release. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in lots of ways. I mean, our, 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 you know, the Cure's manager, Chris Parry, had a, had a label fiction. And, uh, you know, Bauhaus, you know, were closely sort of, they, they followed the Cure and they followed what, what we were, you know, about. And so they sent their first you know, records to, to Chris because they were, you know, they liked The Cure so they thought, well, maybe he'd be interested in releasing it. And he actually, you know, he really liked it, but he said, yeah, you know what, boys, it's too long. It's nine minutes long or something. You know, it was like, it was like too long. So, but in a strange sort of, uh, you know, twist of fate, they ended up going with Small Wonder, which is where we put out our first record on. So uh, there's there's all that connection. And like I say now, you know, I, I know Kevin. I know I know all the drummers. All drummers are friends. You know, it's like being part of the Freemasons. Um, you know, so I I think really they came from a similar kind of place. They came from Northampton, which is a sort of you know dark and dismal. And that's the other thing that that inspired a lot of the music. You know, a few years ago I was uh, looking. You know, when when things like Google Earth first came out. You know, and I was sort of wandering around where where I grew up and have a look and I. I was amazed, you know, it was like it was everything that we wrote about, every, the style of everything was there right in the streets of, of where we where we were, where we lived. And so, you know, I called Rob up and said, you know, you better have a look at this because it's all there in the dank, dark English countryside, you know. Same thing for the Bauhaus. Yeah. Um, well, this listener writes, I don't think I ever considered myself goth, but I'm a huge Cure fan, and Susie, and Bauhaus. But I wonder what the Cure thought as they looked out on the crowd all dressed and made up alike as they played Jumping Someone Else's Train. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, Jumping Someone Else's Train was specifically about not being on a particular bandwagon, but that doesn't mean you can't, you know, like things. Uh, I think, you know, we were, we were like... I always say to people, I'm humbled and flattered at the same time. If I see people that sort of, you know, follow the the, the style and the look and and stuff, so uh, you know, that's always going to happen. That's just that's a way of you know putting your badge on and saying, you know, I I agree with this, you know, which is you know something that we were very uh, happy that happened. You know, definitely I was. Yeah. You described goth as a mindset. And there are yeah. some really beautiful descriptions that you have in your book. I just want to read a couple of them. In particular, you write how to liberate your soul and have a happy, sad time doing it. It's been about not following the crowd and not following the forces of repression and normality to drag us down to ordinariness. It's about escaping all that and also more importantly, about finding out who we are. You've also talked about it as finding beauty in the melancholy and in the dark. And yeah. so I, I'm wondering what you think makes goth, you know, so relevant to today? Like, why do you feel like that sort of perspective and way of being, that mindset is useful mm. for the things that we are going through today? 
Well, you know, we, you know, it's pretty much a time like the end of the 70s, you know, the, the, the rise of authoritarianism, maybe even fascism coming along. Um, the world is in turmoil. I mean, you know, you can see that every day. Uh, I think what happened for us was we were able to consider something. We were able to consider how how we felt, but we were also able to see the, the beauty in, in things that were going on and the art of stuff and that gives you a, a sense of community because goth is really like a community you know there's people who have a similar world view and that makes you feel uh i don't know it's not a safe place to be particularly but it but it's but it's a good well no yes it is a safe place to be it's very it's very uh you know, in that way, it, it helps people through things. So the thing that used to upset me a bit at the beginning was people would say, oh, well, you play this really you know, dark and depressing music. Yes. And people who are listening to it, they must feel dark and depressed. And maybe that causes, you know, some more bad things to happen. And I say, no, you're wrong. It's exactly the opposite. Because people identify with, with things and the emotions that are written about in the songs, that helps them through stuff. And, and I always had, a, you know, letters or talk to people at least once every time that I, I went on my tour with Cured and, and talked to people at least one person came up to me every time and said you know that helped me get through a particularly bad patch in my life so you know thank you and I'm grateful for it and that that to me is is the biggest reward of the whole thing because ultimately it's about helping you know everybody and helping everything and i mean that's the point that people miss that it's not just you know the clothes and it's not about bats or coffins it's about a way to live a way to be and and that's really why it stayed so long and that's why it's having a resurgence now as well because it fits the times that's just a bit of mina's conversation go check out the full interview just search kqed forum goth and don't go anywhere. Forum and Focus is back in a minute with Alexis's conversation with Penn Harshaw about his series, Hyphy Kids Got Trauma. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Pendarvis Harshaw is an Oakland native, Howard graduate, and one of the most community-minded media makers I've ever known. He's the host of the KQED podcast Right Nowish, and he's also the guy you see at the town hall meeting or the cookout. He's splitting time up in Sacramento these days, but he's so deeply embedded in this Bay Area. We've known each other for years, and I'm telling you, this latest series of his, Hyphy Kids Got Trauma, is an inside view of the conditions that created Hyphy 
the way the meaning of that movement bent and transformed, and also the aftermath of a time in Oakland's history that did enormous damage to our black community. I think there are real lessons for our current moment too, when we're seeing such difficult and desperate times. No one else in the world could tell this story in exactly the way that Penn did, and I am delighted to welcome him to Forum. Penn, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. How's it going? <laughs> good, good. I want you to take us back to 2006. I mean, who was Pendarvis Harshaw back then? Pendarvis Harshaw was trying to figure out who Pendarvis Harshaw is. <laughs> <laughs> At 18, we're all doing that, right? You're kind of jumping off the porch, trying to get out into this economy, figure out what you're going to be when you grow up, find love, all those important things. Mm -hmm. um, and I was doing it in the midst of one of the biggest cultural movements of my time. Yeah. Um, and I had the, the benefit of being a journalist in the middle of it. Yeah. Were you like a, were you in the music scene, like at that age, like right off the jump, or were you just kind of like around the edges, kind of reporting on it, looking at it? Yeah. So coming up, um, I saw, I was, I'm, I'm a nonprofit child. <laughs> I was a part of youth everything in the East Bay and a couple of youth somethings in the in, in San Francisco. And so uh, YR Media, now known, but uh, formerly Youth Radio was where I really got started at 16, 17. And that kind of pushed me into the uh, formal arts scene. So around the poets, around the rappers, um, the visual artists, you name it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I could tell my story and it didn't have to be over a beat. It didn't have to rhyme. It could be through journalism. And so that, that's what I took. Yeah. So, you know, if I think about Oakland 2006, right? I mean, this is like the subprime mortgage crisis is just beginning to happen. We end up with this like incredible, um, you know, loss of wealth in black communities. We end up with, you know, ton unemployment beginning to spike in 2006. We have all these homicides that are going on. I mean, how much of that other stuff that was going on in Oakland, how much of that was stuff you were feeling? Subconsciously, all of it. You know, I, I don't think we were conscious of all these different factors. Like you can imagine that the 2000 census comes out and you see how many black people are in Oakland and you don't have an idea of how many people are leaving until the 2010 census comes out. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but but you can say that, hey, my friend moved to Antioch. This friend moved to, to Vegas. This friend moved to the south. Um, you start to get a sense of like something is changing. Um, and, and, and that sense of, of danger and feeling like you're constantly in peril. That, that's really what I recall at the time. And, and I had the benefit of having journals, like real journal entries, um, where I'm writing down what I'm feeling at the time. And so now being an adult and having the language to express it, I'm uh -huh. like, oh, I was having a traumatic experience and I just didn't realize it at that time. Yeah, yeah because, you know, you open this series with losing a friend, you know, a, a kid that you grew up with was was killed. Yeah, yeah. R.I.P. Willie Clay. Willie Clay was a charismatic dude from a neighborhood called the Dubs, the Murder Dubs. Um, a, a childhood friend of mine, um, unfortunately, one of a handful of, of friends who I, I lost that year. Um, mm -hmm. And I share Willie Clay's story because he himself is important. And also, he, in a lot of ways, he symbolizes kind of that start to so many deaths. And it's actually kind of a blur after that. Like, I remember Willie's funeral and then so many funerals I, you know kind of lose count mm. um but yes 2006 starts in january of losing willie clay and then in november of that year um we lost marcel and in between there was a whole bunch of folks man 
And, you know, it's interesting because, like, you look back at that time and, you know, you get, like, hyphy retrospectives. You get things, you know, where people are talking about that time. And it's, it's like, seems fun, right? I mean, that's, like, a lot of what has been emphasized in these histories is just kind of, like, the, the joy of those, of that year and those years. Yeah, and, I mean, it was, it was that, too. And I think they're one and the same, and it's kind of beautiful. And I didn't realize it until doing this project, but it's it happens time and time again. You think about like second lines in New Orleans, and like mm-hmm. that, that's a celebration of life. And you know, after someone passes, um, there's uh I was talking to a friend out of Detroit, and he was talking about all of the tragedies that Michigan has experienced and how it's now showing up in kind of this up tempo, fast-paced music out of Flint and in, in Detroit. And um and so yeah, I think that they're they go hand in hand, the tragedy and the triumph. Mm. Let's uh, hear a little bit of a song that came out in uh, March 2006, right in this like kind of pivotal year in your life and in this music scene. Um, this is a uh, blow the whistle, too short and little John. <laughs> So, Penn, we're going to drop this down a little bit and have you talk a little bit about, like, what defined this kind of, like, hyphy sound? That bass line. Are you serious? <laughs> like, that just, that bass line itself already just moves the soul, right? Um, and then that energy that he talks about, his various cadence, um, the music video itself, it has a number of well-known turf dancers in it. Um, and the turf dancing was really what we gave, like, the visual depiction to the energy you know mm. pe- people could talk about like the way that the parties moved but it was nothing like seeing the actual dancers on the floor showing the moves and showing that energy yeah yeah i mean when you talk about turf dancing you know tell us a little bit about what might be different about that or what what that movement uh emerged out of yeah it's kind of hard to talk about turf dance without showing yeah folks. right um, i know it's like look up the like turf doing, fiends on youtube while, while you're listening. I'm doing yeah. the turf dance moves while we talk um all right so there's a video speaking of youtube the most popular depiction of turf dancing is uh turfing in the rain mm-hmm. where there's a group of folks dancing on a corner in dp stokeland as they pay respects to one of their fallen friends and that right there you'll see the moves um there's millions of views on it um and you'll see that it comes out of pain it's beautiful art on a rainy day and they're you know like paying respect to a friend who, who has died um and so turf dancing itself is like a not only the physical embodiment of that energy but also a way to get out some of that trauma i mean it's really a beautiful art yeah i mean you know some of the moves you know there's a kind of like these smooth movements there's uh, i'm trying to i'm trying to think of how to um how to describe <laughs> what some of the and it's also yeah. right there's a bunch of different styles um but it's not like break dancing on the floor a lot of it is right kind of like these smooth movements like kind of uh, standing up yeah. and Episode two dives into turf dancing, turf, T-U-R-F, taking up room on the floor, uh, defined by Jarrell Bay. 
um, is is really a mixture of Boogaloo, Panama, a little bit of footwork, being player like Bay Area folks always do, um, and then storytelling <laughs> and really yeah. using your body to tell stories. And it can be everything from using your hands to using your footwork and your facial expressions for sure. Um, yeah. And that turf dancing, like it happened everywhere. I, in episode two, I kind of paint the picture of how folks were dancing in schools and in hallways and bus stops. Um, and specifically this youth center called Youth Uprising in Deep East Oakland, where they would have uh, dance battles and young folks would come out and show out. And it was a beautiful thing. And that was uh, like right by Castlemont High School, right? Like out there? Right, right next to it, yep. Yeah. So what did this, at the time... What role did this music play in your life? Was was this like just dominating what you were thinking about, what you were doing on a daily basis? Or was it just kind of like some something in the background? It was a mixture. Uh, I think that I could appreciate the national attention. I love seeing BT cameras and MTV cameras in East Oakland. I love seeing local artists get national acclaim. And I started traveling at that time. And I started realizing that people were looking at the Bay Area as just hyphy. As just and hyphy itself was being um the depiction was looked at as like goofy and i'm like whoa 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 slow down like first of all hyphy it means like aggressive you know like hyperactive second of all there's a lot more to the bay area than just this up-tempo music um so it wasn't just i wasn't just all consumed by the hyphy energy um and i i was a part yeah. of it for sure yeah yeah we have a cut from uh, Stretch McCoy, um, Seaside Stretch, a promoter and manager for a hip-hop artist, describing kind of how hyphy was perceived versus the reality. It was presented in a way that would be more friendly to everybody. You know what I mean? Just the term hyphy was, it meant something completely different than what it was commercialized as. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't a good thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, they didn't say like, oh... Them kids is hyphy, and that meant that they were just dancing around having a good time. No, that means they were destructive and violent, you know what I'm saying? So I think that, you know, it was marketed in a way that, you know, that corporations do to sell a product, which was the music. So that's the result of what people seen and what people live were two different things. But I think it became a self-fulfilling prophecy where the people who were a part of the culture ended up changing things to fit what was sellable. You can hear so much more on the full episode. Search KQED Forum Hyphy, H-Y-P-H-Y, on your favorite podcast app, and check out Penn's full series on his podcast Right Now-ish. And that's all for Forum and Focus, the week's most compelling conversations in under 30 minutes. Thanks for listening. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.